listeners might be aware that we've been off the air for a while. I think it's like two months now, or maybe just under something two months. Something like that. Yeah, it's something like that. Um, I've briefly discussed this on the channel as to why this is occurring, but this also affects the podcast. So I thought it would be only right, uh, particularly for the patrons, uh, to to kind of give people an insight as to what's going on, minus the gory details, and just what to uh, what to expect in, in the upcoming future. Um, sound good, Bill? Fine by me. Um, lovely, really depressing way of starting an episode, but here we are, 2020, everyone. <laughs> um, yeah, so a thing has happened in my life that has um, kind of thrown... Uh, my life and my family's life into a bit of uh, chaos at the moment. And uh, we all sat down and had a talk about what is to be done about this thing. And logical thing was that I had to make some changes to my life. And that also means um, make some changes to Artifexian, namely not being able to uh, work as much on Artifexian for those familial reasons. Um this also goes for the podcast, hence why we've been away for over a month. Uh, I don't foresee this situation changing uh, readily in the near future. So it could be a while, folks, of very intermittent content on my part because of this. Uh, there is very, very, very little I can do to change this. Um, so I, you just have to stick in there. Uh, and I apologize for this. But like again, 2020, the best year. <laughs> So just a, just a heads up for everyone, just to know what's going on, so you're not in dark and being like, where where is artifacts in X, X Y and Z, um, and also for patrons, um, obviously uh, I still need to make a living in this time, even at a time of reduced content. Um, so I would love if you could stick around uh, for me and us through this time. But if not, that's also entirely cool. Like it's up to you. So if you're like, oh, I'm not going to get massively regular content for the next while, I'm going to cut funding that's entirely cool and that is they go for it uh if needs be but i would encourage you if you can spare it uh please do because yeah i i we do need to still have an income um so worrying times over the next while yeah yeah so i know uh, mm-hmm. not not a very fun way to start an episode but a necessary way to start an episode um in a complete change of theme and feel and mood. Shall we do some follow-up, Bill? Let's. Okay, so I have two things to bring up from the Reddit, um, from the last episode, which occurred low those many years ago, um, and they were uh, two corrections. We, we, we erred twice, significantly heard in our, in our previous episode and one was uh we had a discussion about uh we were talking about raw materials uh, and ores and resources etc and how they would be they could run out and i think we referred to like iron running out uh, and the reddit made it very clear that uh, iron is in fact reusable um and it's it's a it is technically a renewable resource um uh, which is not something we indicated and not something i really knew uh until i thought about it and then we got into a really cool discussion in the reddit about like like almost like a resource sequestering where yeah a resource may not be uh may be renewable but like it's not very renewable if it's tied up in structures like iron tied up in steel and all that sort of crack and i, I really like that um 
that discussion. I think it might even be cool fodder for world building, as in world is running out of X material, but X material is everywhere. It's just that it cannot be used because it's being sequestered. That could be mm-hmm. a, a fun little thing. Um, so yeah, correction on iron and its reusability. And thank you for that correction, because mm-hmm. that is good to know and has uh, soothed my some of my anxiety on that particular topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then, then we got a heap of people being all like, do you want to hear what we're really in danger of running out of? And then we got the existential threat of like, helium is leaving. There are, there is Why did you have to bring that up? <laughs> <laughs> I still read it, pal. <laughs> Uh, but anyway and then the other one uh, I'm ki- I was kicking myself for this one absolutely kicking myself for this one uh, is the dilithium I said that dilithium in uh, is not real as in dilithium is a made up uh, fantasy resource in Star Trek um, that is not the case there is in fact IRL dilithium uh, and I knew this having read up on like trek back in the day i just for some reason my brain just left me in that moment and i caught it in the edit and i was like oh edgar you numpty um dilithium uh, in real life does not power starships it's not re- it's not used in combustion it is it is literally a very boring gas if i recall correctly um so yeah second i'm gonna slightly disagree with that correction oh Okay. Because di- the the word is used for it's like a a molecule or a substance that's, that's two two uh, atoms of lithium, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not what it is in in Star Trek. Yeah, but like th- in Star Trek, it is a totally different substance. <laughs> it is a it is it is an element. So it is still like the word it, it uses the same word, but it is not at all the same substance. Th- that that is true, but but maybe the problem problem here is the word, isn't it? Because like the like it's almost not like a proper noun. It's almost like a recipe, you know, like dilithium, two lithiums, and there's only yeah, like, and that's that's foolish on the part of the of whoever coined yes. the phrase for for that use. But like you're not wrong to say that this thing in in Star Trek is fictional. All oh, right. Okay. So Bill has spoken. Apparently, we only made one error uh, in the last episode. I well, was completely there, there, there's an ambiguity. There's an ambiguity. <laughs> yeah. No. No. For sure. For sure. Um, but uh, yeah. But anyway, dilithium uh, exists both in Star Trek and IRL. In Star Trek, it's this wonderful substance that creates FTL travel um, or enables FTL travel. And uh, in real life, it's just mega boring. Uh, which is always fun. So those are the two corrections from the Reddit. Have you got anything in the Reddit to bring up, Bill? Um, no, that's that's pretty much everything, I think. Cool. All right. Uh, some email. Uh, now, last time we didn't do any follow-up because why was that? Oh, yes, because Plato. Plato's Republic killed follow-up last time. So uh, I've decided to uh, do more follow-up this time just to kind of balance the books sure. in a way. Uh, so the first bit item of follow-up comes from uh, a chap called Samuel Edwards. So Samuel uh, writes into us and says that they're having tr- trouble uh, keeping their conlanging organized. And they ask um, the spreadsheets I've used in previous linguistics videos. Um, where did I get them? And can I get a link or a copy to those? Um, real quick, the answer to that is I made them myself. Uh, and then two, can I get a link, uh, a copy to those? Uh, the answer is no, because they no longer exist because up until about a year or two ago, I was very bad at doing backup 
uh, and when I changed computers, stuff just got lost, and a lot of our early artifacts and stuff got lost. So that's part of them that got lost. So um, I can't give you those spreadsheets, but they're easy to make. Just any, just use Google Sheets or whatever, uh, and just put stuff in spreadsheets, and you'd be grand. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Elijah Thomas. I'm going out of order here, Bill. I'm going renegade. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Elijah Thomas writes, I was wondering, is there any plans to make an in-depth guide on how to use Illustrator? It seems like an overwhelming program to start using for map making. The answer is no, because there's an ample amount of Illustrator tutorials out there. Um, in, quick tip, though, in terms of overwhelmingness when it comes to programs. And this applies to everything from like G plates to Photoshop to Illustrator, anything you might use in world building is that all of these programs are overwhelming. Uh, and I always feel overwhelmed coming to them. But I always try and remember the sort of 80-20 rule, which is like you can get 80% of the, what you want to do done with 20% of the tools. So people look at the interface and they're like, oh, there's a gazillion tools everywhere. Really in Illustrator, all you need to know how to do is locate the pencil tool and you can start drawing. And everything else just kind of follows on from that as you problem solve. Like, oh, how do I change color? And like, you you find that and then you find the next thing. So uh, be okay with the overwhelmingness and then just know that you only need to master three or four tools to get you 80% of the way on the way. And I, that, that has helped me whenever I switch program and I'm like, oh God, what the hell is this? Um, so quick tip there and Illustrator tutorials all over YouTube. Uh, there's ample stuff out there. Great, yeah. I mean, there's so many resources on on pretty much any software out there if, if you if you know where to look, and it's not hard. It's not hard to find where to look. There's there's no end of sites with with tutorials and even paid courses and free ones or whatever. Yeah, and, and to be fair, the the YouTube stuff is like for everything I know about Artifacts and I've learned through YouTube uh, in terms of mm-hmm. using all of the. Uh, apps that i do use so that's like after effects premiere pro illustrator photoshop like that's all just youtube stuff like i've never taken a paid course and uh so yeah tldr youtube's the place to go um mm-hmm. you'll you be grand uh so then our next one come our next email comes from jim k uh, and jim k asks about um how to design good plate tectonics they write how do you come up with good tectonic plates the issue is that I can't really randomly draw plates, and when I try, they look nothing like the plates on Earth. So I was wondering if you have any methods to decide the lines that make up the plates, any random gener- generation processes, or taking inspiration from everyday shapes, etc. Uh, so I th- think we might have answered this before, but we get I get this question off lot, so I thought I'd uh, answer it again. The, the most accurate but the most unsatisfactory answer is practice. Uh, like the the more you do a thing, the just the better your eye gets at the thing. So just keep keep churning and burning, just keep sketching stuff on paper, and just keep going through. It. And eventually, you'll be like, oh, I really like this shape and that shape, etc. Um, I don't have any tips for random generation processes because I don't like them. You'll further email in a second on that. Um, inspiration from everyday shapes, absolutely. There's there's loads of fun on on like the world building Reddit. 
um, at least it was a while ago, where people would like take a picture of some rusted pole or whatever, and it would look like uh, a country or whatever. And you can like take that shape uh, and go, oh, I'll, I'll use that. Um, or I like sometimes I do uh, tea stains, like as in tea stains on a piece of paper, and they just end up making a shape or whatever. And then I kind of like reverse engineer the plates onto the land masses and then very often go, oh, well, actually, in order to make these set of plates works, I have to insert this extra little plate here uh, to make sure all the directions are going in the correct way. And then, oh, that creates a mountain chain here and things like that. Um, so trial and error. And then, yeah, you can totally draw inspiration from everyday things like rust, um, stains, anything like that. One I love is um, a half dry footpath after rainfall. Like, you know, the way it doesn't, it doesn't usually dry out completely evenly. There'll be, there'll be darker, wetter patches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can. They often look like like landmass shapes. Actually, I've never I never thought of that. Actually, yeah. Do you go around like just taking pictures of your foot local footpaths <laughs> in your smoking jacket? <laughs> um, yes, to the smoking jacket part. But um, no, but I, I have like taken pictures of ones where I thought, oh, that looks cool. Just like where I happen to see one and be like, oh, it looks like a landmass. Click. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you can draw inspiration as with any sort of art. You can draw inspiration from everyday life all over the place, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it just how do you get good at it and how do you make good platonics? Just practice. That's all I can say. Uh, churn and burn. Um, this is how you get good at any any sort of any sort of art. Uh, our next email comes from a now comes from a Michelle Michele. This person clearly is Italian, uh, so. I'm it's uh, it's Michela. Michela. Okay, okay, cool. Or Michelers. Just... Yeah, in, in Italian, it's Michela. Uh, Michela writes in on the topic of plate tectonics as well, uh, but this time specifically asking about random uh, generators. At the core of their email, they write, what do you think about simulating the plate movements for like 2 billion years to obtain a genuine, quote, random but kind of scientific proof continental shape? Um, so my thoughts on... Uh, simulations and generators are that personally I only use them for inspiration and nothing more beyond that uh, because I feel like if you just rely on generators all the time for your you know your land masses uh, your uh, cultures your languages etc you've just like created a world that's almost free of any of your autonomy uh, and any of your artistic sensibilities, whereas I much rather just make something that maybe isn't you know hundred percent scientifically accurate because it isn't based off a model, but has has my artistic style imbued into it. Um, mm-hmm. So I kind of veer away from generators in everything. Like I don't, I really don't don't like them. Um, in terms of the simulating like a history over two billion years, that doesn't really need to be simulated. Like you can you can simulate that, or or you can uh, give the impression that you've thought about these things uh, in where you place like old and new mountains. You know, so if you have like oh new mountain chain here, and there's an old mountain chain on the other side of the continent, oh that must mean that that other side was once on an active subduction zone, an active um, convergence zone, and now it's no longer and the mountains have worn away, you can hint at that thing, that, that, that kind of evolution without having to do all the work of like actually evolving a planet uh, just by wisely locating features. Um, so I think, I think you don't actually need to simulate the thing to give that sort of deep history to it. Um, they mention tectonics.js, 
and this is the thing that a lot of people like and I keep hearing uh, hearing come up I, I don't like it and I'm probably the only world builder who doesn't like it again for the reasons of like it's it, it has none of my autonomy in it it's just computer spits out mm. this sounds so Luddite like and I love my computers but like <laughs> the Luddites were awesome but anyway that's fair uh the yeah computer spits out landmass and then make small tweaks and that's my world it just yeah. for me for me that seems really uh not satisfactory uh and i really enjoy the process of like starting with like a single brush stroke on a page and building it all up and then at the end i have this like glorious thing that is 100 me i really mm-hmm. enjoy that um they go on to say um harder question uh, continental rock age and typology i would love to manage to find a quick system to quote randomize scientifically the composition and age of rock in continental plates to make a more realistic aging and distribution of natural features in my world so again this is the sort of idea like do we need a hundred percent scientific uh, accuracy here do we need to go to models or can we kind of hint at this with kind of wise placement uh, and i would be on the latter like you can you can totally be all like like the ancient cratons go here here and here because that's kind of where they go on earth etc and just through reading a wikipedia page about like um i think they're called shields i think that's what they are like areas of um areas of different rock around the world uh, i think they're called shields um, i'll throw the link in the show notes once i get it um just study up on that and then you can just you can imbue that in your world without doing all the modeling sort of stuff and again as per the previous point all rely have too heavy a reliance on modeling takes away uh, autonomy and your own artistic sensibility um so that's why i don't uh tl dior anything to add there um yeah i mean i i've nothing particularly against the generation and and um randomization and things but they ha- it has to be uh, tempered by your own decisions, artistic or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I, I don't think you can just make the make the thing make the decisions for you. That won't really get you anywhere. Um, and I think it can be a good a good starting point or a good thing to to break through blocks or to just kind of get going. Mm-hmm. But yeah, your your own creative decisions and autonomy should overrule that. Sure. And and I think as well, a lot of things, a lot of reasons why people do kind of go to generators is because this is maybe projecting slightly, but I think people feel like they don't have the necessary artistic uh, skills to be Mm -hmm. able to just do it all themselves. Um, And if that is the case, just want to really implore people that you really don't need a great degree of artistry to do really nice maps and things like that. Um. As Bill has demonstrated on the show before, if you're really crap at art, you can make your maps be in-universe artifacts, as in like a, a field drawing or whatever. I'm not not saying that you're bad at map making, Bill. None you, taken. <laughs> Jesus. But you did. No, you 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 said so expressly. You were all like, "This maybe you said it off air, but you're like, this map looks really bad, but it's a field report. Uh, scouts report in the field. No, I did. Yeah, I did. Um, so you can do that, and then also like, it, you don't need to have great artistic sensibility to draw like uh, squiggly coastlines um and yeah and if you watch the my series on the map making it, again you don't really need a whole bunch of like um artistry there because it's just you know pick a color palette steal it from wikipedia 
draw loads of squiggly shapes and fill them in and there's the more almost like the more detail you put into the thing the more art the more skillful it looks do you know what i mean mm-hmm. and it looks complex and massively skillful and hard to do or whatever but it's really just loads of really simple shapes um so i i'm firmly of the belief that anyone can uh, can has has the necessary artistic level to do map making and things like that so if, if you're if you're going to generation because of this like i can't draw or whatever um Give the drawing a shot. I bet you you can. Um, mm-hmm. Now, uh, so next email uh, is from uh, Thomas Roggenbuck. Um, and they write, uh, I find it interesting that in English we have unique numbers from 1 to 12. And in Spanish they have unique numbers up to 15. Could these be from old bases that were used uh, before base 10 was adopted? Uh, answer, yes. Uh, I'm not sure what exactly for english and spanish but the notion of like could these be old bases 100 percent. and there's loads of language where you find french being the canonical example here where you find like the remnants of i think it's the base 20 system um left in their counting and so that that happens all over the gaff so yeah totally 100 percent is a thing Mm -hmm. um in germanic languages the unique words for 11 and 12 come from uh, it's like one left over and two left over. So it's an extension to decimal. Oh, I didn't know that. I think Is so, it? yeah. Some, it's something like that, yeah. Or it's like huh. one additional, two additional, something like that. Oh, you're dead right. Would you look at that? Would you look at that? So elf, in German, in German, the, the word for 11 is elf. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then apparently this comes from old high German, according to Wiktionary, uh, which is einlif. And ein is like, eins is the modern word for one. So ein lif here sounds very much like one left over or whatever. I don't know what lif is because I do not speak old high German, but it certainly looks like it's a, a uh, it is, it has one built into it. That's really interesting. What is zwölf then? I've never, never actually thought about this before. Zwei uh, elf, I guess. Oh yeah. Yeah. Must be from old, uh, not quite old high German Zwölf. Um, wow, that sounds really much. That sounds so much like twelve. It's great. Um, yeah. Zwölf. So yeah, obviously it's a it's a what's the word for a concatenation of zwei in this ilf sound, yeah. um, or lif sound. I don't for the life of me, I can't think what lif became in modern German. What is that word? I don't know. Uh, I can't think on the fly. Uh, but there you go. But certainly, certainly though, uh, you, you, any sort of like thing like that can be remnants of an older base. Like it's absolutely plausible to do that. Yeah, um, I, I, I like that. That specific example, I think, is sure. not the case. But sure, you know, yeah. languages languages do do stuff like that. Um, for sure, for sure. Uh, now, so we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, okay, okay, cool. Uh, so the last two emails spend slightly longer on them because I think they uh, have interesting discussion points. Uh, the first one is directed at Bill. Uh, that is uh, Tom Ashworth's uh, email. Do you want to give it a blast there, Bill? So this is from Tom Ashworth, who's listening through the, the old episodes. And says, in, in an early episode, I talk about the divide between sci-fi and fantasy, that science fiction looks towards the future. Um, and Tom says, I want to, I think that's worth discussing because I'm not sure it's true. Uh, now, I think I think what's being referred to there, now this, this is several years ago, so I, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I was referring to an article by a writer called Orscott Backer. Yes. Called The Skeptical Fantasist. 
and I actually have it open here, and he says something um, like, uh, where science fiction, one might say, constructs pseudo-knowledge of the future, fantasy fiction reconstructs the pseudo-knowledge of the past. So that's a little a little different from from it is looking into the future necessarily. I think it's more like um, it is... It is extrapolating like things that we we might one day know to be true, um, whereas f- fantasy is about stuff that we thought previously might one day be true. Um, now, Tom Tom brings up some interesting stuff here that uh, many works of science fiction are set in the time they are written, uh, like cyberpunk comes about as the internet and communication technology is is beginning to be invented and stuff written in the 60s might refer to things like ESP, which were considered a little bit more plausible, uh, scientifically plausible at the time. But in that case, you're still looking at things that might turn out to be true or seeing how the effect of technology, where that might lead us. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the, the, the final example given here is Middlemarch by George Eliot. And it's suggested that Middlemarch might be the first science fiction novel because it's about how the lives of women were impacted by the advent of railway travel, how technology changed their lives. Uh, now, that's a really good point. And definitely the, the thing about the influence of technology is is relevant here. And that is a, a case where it doesn't necessarily construct pseudo-knowledge of the future. Um, and I think you you could to have a broader definition definitely of science fiction encompassing things that look at how technology affects lives and how the the changes caused by technology and i can even think of a series you could you could argue is science fiction that is set very much in the past oh yeah i think i've mentioned this before the baroque cycle by neil stevenson oh you have yes yeah and that's I think you could make a very strong case that that's science fiction because it is um, largely about technology and the invention of technologies and more so than specific like physical technologies, the invention of new concepts and new modes of thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's set in between about 1660 and 1720. And it's about the, the invention of kind of modern economics and... Uh, steam power becomes kind of relevant towards the end and stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think there is something to the, the, the distinction between pseudo-knowledge of the future and pseudo-knowledge of the past that, that Backer suggests. Um, but it's not exactly that it's looking exclusively towards the future. It's more about seeing how things could be, even if you're looking at concepts from the present. And then, as I said, it does leave out stuff like... Uh, looking at the influence of technology in general, which I think you could definitely make a case for, as in the Middle March or the Baroque cycle. That was that was very comprehensive, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, we'll have a back and forth and we'll discuss like, you know, what the definition of things. And just as every as you kept talking, I, I would literally have a pen in front of me here where I've just jotted down notes to bring up and then you'd bring up a point and I'd be like, oh, talk about this. And then immediately the next line, you, you, you'd address that. So I'm like, okay, scratch that. And now I'm left with like, yeah, 
Well played. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's good. It's good. I, I think, I think Tom, Tom's point is, is, it, I think it's very interesting. Um, the notion of like what it means to look into the future. Um, mm-hmm. I even aside from everything you just said, like I found, I found the idea of like uh, sci-fi being very much of its time. It doesn't disqualify it from looking into the future. Um, yeah, because you need to start somewhere to look away from that. You know. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems perfectly natural that uh, if your intent as a sci-fi author is to really examine the future, you must do it from the from the perspective of the present. Yeah. But uh, but interesting point, and certainly the thing about the I, the thing about the first fantasy novel, I really was like uh, the first sci-fi novel. I really was like, what could be considered the first sci-fi novel? That's a really interesting thing. Like, who was that pioneer that mm. decided, or that didn't decide, but like inadvertently opened the gates to this genre? Um, that always thinking about those things always is very interesting. Like, what was the first fantasy novel? Like, how do the definition of these things? I think is very interesting. Yeah, I mean, Mary Shelley is often given the the first science fiction novel title. Uh, Frankenstein. Yeah. Yes, nailed it. Never read <laughs> Frankenstein. Is is it Frankenstein? Is it good? Um, as I recall, yeah, I haven't read it in a long time. Um, okay, but yeah. It's 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 quite different to to the the image of it in in popular media, um, oh. like from from film adaptations and stuff. Oh, so what what so okay so Frankenstein for me is Mad Doctor uh, wants to animate corpse, mm-hmm. corpse gets animated, runs amok. What's different? Um, he doesn't really do that that much running amok. Oh, um, he kind of he runs away. And he kind of hides. He hides in like a shed beside a house, and he learns to speak that way. But he's he's like really sympathetic. He's not he's oh. not a monster. And Frankenstein is like the the doctor Victor is quite horrible, um, and is not that sympathetic. Um, yeah, it's 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 interesting. Oh. Like I, I said this before, I, I like to compare famous archetypal characters or you know famous um iconic characters in popular media to their original versions and like they're so often very very different oh can you give us another example um well i I mentioned tarzan before um Mm -hmm. a couple a couple uh maybe a year or so ago and do, do you recall what the first thing tarzan says to jane is no so, well, like, what's what's the classical thing that Tarzan and Jane say? Like, it's... Uh, me, me, Tarzan, you, Jane. Yeah. Oh. And in the original book, Tarzan, um, by, I think it's Edgar Rice Burroughs, the first thing Tarzan says to Jane is, Yes, Jane, it is I, your primordial man come from the forest oh, yeah. to claim yeah. his mate. Oh, and so in the original work, I, again, listeners, I'm sorry if we've already covered this, but I've already forgotten. <laughs> um, in the original work, is is he, does he speak in that sort of like caveman-esque manner? Or is that a thing that we've just glommed on to Tarzan over the years? Yeah, that, that doesn't happen at all. Doesn't so he doesn't do any of that like ungrammatical stuff? No. Oh. He, he speaks, he can speak the ape language of the apes who raise him, like from, from his childhood he learns to read english um independently of that uh and then the first actual human language he learns to speak he he can communicate in written english um i think uh but then he learns to speak french and then he learns to speak english 
Wow. Oh, Jesus, yeah. he did that. He took, he, he was on hard mode there. He learned how to write <laughs> English right. first before speaking it. Good God. <laughs> oh, so that's just the thing that we've completely changed. That's mad. Yeah. That's that's mad. Any other ones? Um, I saw a reference to Sherlock Holmes in something recently. And uh, the the gag was like the, the person was like referring to Sherlock Holmes as... Uh, you know, like a weak English nerd, but instead I'm like Sherlock Holmes, but I'm also strong. Um, Sherlock Holmes was immensely strong. Strong as in like physically strong. Like he was physically both. strong. He was yeah. Now that that's that's changed a little bit in in recent years with, um, for example, the Robert Downey Jr. film, Jr. Yeah. where he's a he's a accomplished bare knuckle boxer. Um, but a lot of a lot of the the depictions over the years have have not kind of incorporated that element of him. Um, and the thing, like elementary, dear Watson, is I don't think is said in any of Conan Doyle's works, and uh, Watson is kind of downplayed as a sort of a bumbling sidekick in in a lot of adaptations. And oh. no, Watson's pretty cool. Oh, to be fair though, I think the one true adaptation and what I think of when I think of Sherlock Holmes is the uh, Basil the Great Mouse Detective, <laughs> Disney. <laughs> So every, literally every that. time someone mentions Sherlock Holmes, I always think mouse. And then when someone goes, Robert Downey Jr., I'm like, no, imposter, go away. That's no good. It's the mouse. The same mouse. way that Robin Hood is actually a fox. Robin Hood is a fox. Not actually, is a fox. It's important. <laughs> um, just backtracking a second to the, this definition of sci-fi uh, mm-hmm. with the whole technology slant. Um, Handmaid's Tale. Mm-hmm. Do you call? Would you class that as sci-fi or what would you class that? Because, I mean, lots of people go like, it's necessarily sci-fi if it's set in the future, which I believe Handmaid's Tale is. Like, it's not set present. It's set in some near future. It's certainly um, set in the future when it was written, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So lots of people, I think, would say, oh, that's necessarily science fiction. Uh, but then under the definition of science fiction, it with, has this technology sort of tie in very often. There's not really a whole heap of that going on. That's particularly like looking forward into how technology develops or whatever um what what would you say uh how would you classify handmaid's tale um you could make a case that it is because of what what is the circumstance that that has caused uh infertility is it a is it a, a disease oh. or is it a side effect oh. of of a weapon or something I don't remember. It's it's I one don't... of those two, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think um, it's the former. I'm going to put my neck out and say it. I think it's the former. Okay. Um, so that is kind of positing a, a future where mm. things are different than they are and uh, how society or a, a reaction to that from a society. So, yeah, I, I guess you could. Um, it's not very central like the the fact of the technology isn't very central to, or sorry, the the you know like the the fact of that difference, what the disease or weapon or whatever it was, isn't very central to the the story. Um, mm-hmm. It just kind of it sets up. It's it's a it's a device to set up the plot and to set up the setting. But I mean, I think you could still make a case. Um, yep. It doesn't have to be that central. I think in in a lot of in a lot of science fiction. And Margaret Atwood has written other stuff that's definitely science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. I started that out by thinking that I would say that it wasn't. And the more I talked about it, the more I decided it kind of was. 
<laughs> I, I mean, because it, it falls in the definition of looking into the future. It's like it. It kind of. I would. I think a lot of people argue that it takes uh, real world current problems we have, yeah. and extrapolates them out to their sort of like worst yeah. end. Uh, so that it fits the definition of, or at least my definition of, take what is at present and see where it might go in the future. So for me, it will be science fiction. Um, it's just really weird to think of science fiction as science fiction sans lasers and, you know, the interweb and the matrix and yeah. things like that. This sort of low-key science fiction or whatever, low science fiction. Um, uh, live correction to myself. Uh, the reason why they're infertile, apparently, according to a quick Google, is inorganic farming and radioactivity um, was cited in season one, episode A Woman's Place. Okay. Uh, so it's all because of the farmers uh, and the radioactive bombs they've been dropping. <laughs> uh, so uh, we thought Roundup was bad. Roundup? What's Roundup? Oh, it's this like uh, pesticide that's super polluting and. Um is used too much i okay we're getting we're going to go tangenty like crazy here apologies internet uh the sorry, the, sorry I, it's not it's not a, a, her, a pesticide it's a herbicide what's what's the difference oh get rid of it gets rid of plants yeah uh, so it's it's, it's like a, a weed killer i guess uh yeah agent orange uh oh, i remember God. learning about agent orange as a kid and being like that is the most bizarre name Ever and I always thought it was very. Uh, I don't actually know the why it's called Agent Orange. I never look into it, but I always thought like it's um almost what's the word like <laughs> emasculating of the product. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like you take this like incredibly dangerous thing mm-hmm. and then you give it a fun city name like Agent Orange. And even as a kid, I was kind of like, that's weird. Like it should be called like I don't know, dichloride oxy tryptamine or whatever like that feels like an appropriate name but agent orange is just i always found it there's a big cognitive disconnect there yes but looking at it from the point of view of its use um are you more likely to think it's a war crime to spray a a half a country with agent orange or it's a war crime to spray half a country with dichlorotryptocalcamine (laughs) <laughs> do you think that uh do you think it was uh do, do you know do you think or do you know if that was a deliberate ploy or was it just like people nicknamed it because it i don't know it was orange or whatever the hell i don't know if it's deliberate in the way that i i exactly the way i just presented but human nature isn't to to say i am doing war crimes you know for sure, for sure. For <laughs> like sure. people are going to come up with ways to to downplay horrible things they do yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And yeah, certainly calling that uh, chemical Agent Orange definitely does that. Agent Orange. God damn it. Uh, okay, so uh, final email. Question mark, question mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, question mark, exclamation mark. Interrobang? <laughs> I think that might be a case for a good interrobang there. Um, final email comes from, this is a, a directed bit as well, but I'll try to read it out. I'm here now. Uh, comes from, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Alexandra Hollanda, uh, I think. Uh, it has the weird ash symbol in the middle, so I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, Alexandra. Uh, one of the questions Alexandra writes is, uh, finally, do you think world building true music is feasible? By this, I mean a world where most of the information is told through pieces of music. This is a riffing on the diegetic nature of what Bill does. Um, I know of two bands that have done something like this, uh, and those are the Mech, Mechanisms? 
mechanisms mm-hmm. and the steam-powered giraffe. Firstly, before Bill answers this, steam-powered giraffe, A-plus name. I love it. Uh, thoughts, Bill? Um, I mean, if this is directly to... Oh, no, this isn't to do with, with diegetic world building. This, this is a, that's a separate question. Uh, I think it follows on from it, though, because it's the notion of, like, um, the, the world is communicated solely through music. Yes. And that's a form of diegetic, diegeticism? Diegesis? Not, not necessarily. Well, I guess not necessarily, yes. Yeah, obviously, but it can be. It, it can be, yeah, but I don't, I don't think that's the intent of the question. Like uh, Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds... That's absolutely telling a story through music, but it's it's absolutely not diegetic. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. I'll take that. Um, yeah, uh, where most of the information is told through pieces of music. Um, I, I mean, like, there are examples of storytelling in music um, without external context. Uh, although, I, I think it would be interesting to, to do it diegetically, for sure, that... You know, all you hear is the in-universe music and what you can draw, what conclusions you can draw about it from that point of view. The things that it, that occur to me, there's a a band called Abney Park, I think, um, who are, I, I, I really, I'm not a particular fan of them, um, but their, their shtick is they're a gang of steampunk airship time travel pirates. Um... <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, like it's it's a medium. It's a medium as much as any other, and you can use it to tell stories. So I, I see no reason why you couldn't use the music to tell a story. Um, uh, and the, the boyos, the the steampunk time travel pirates dudes, uh, their music is solely revolving around their adventures in their fictional steampunk world. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, surely a lot of bands fall under this sort of idea of, like, they, they create a sort of fantasy around them and only ever sing about the fantasy. Yeah. Uh, like, Guar have a whole mythos. There's a, there's a band I've mentioned before called Chthonic, who have a couple of different kind of cycles of stories. They're sort of a symphonic and a black metal band. I'm going to look, have a quick look at who, who these two bands are, because I'm not familiar with them. So just maybe, maybe this maybe this will... Do it. Um tell me more about the the issue of the diegeticism i uh while while bill is googling i think this got me thinking about skyrim and bethesda and how skyrim is littered with a whole bunch of books there's like hundreds of books that tell the story of the world mm-hmm. but like as much as i like reading world building i was never pushed to read any of the books uh, in all the quests and all that sort of jazz. And it got me thinking of like, that would be really interesting if in a Skyrim style game that those books are replaced with music. So instead of going into a dungeon and having to read like the, the hundredth book to find out who the black spider is and, his, and their history, um, you just wa- wander into a bar and every time you wander in the bar, the bard is singing a different story. Mm-hmm. Uh, explaining the world that way, I think that would be a really interesting way. That'd be awesome of of doing it. Yeah, because there's nothing worse. I I hate it so much in Skyrim, where it's like I just want to get this dungeon done, and then you realize you don't really understand why you're doing the quest to do whatever, and you realize, oh, I need to actually read all these bleeding books to understand why the hell I'm doing the thing. And it's like, why are you making me read here, like, game? Uh, so I think doing a bard, telling the story of the world through bards, uh, that way would be a lot better. Yeah. And it's a natural extension of what bards do, you know? 
the the thing that would um worry me there is if the music itself was kind of either bad obviously or kind of uninteresting or just kind of lazily done without thought of like the actual style the style yeah i mean if it's if it's just going to be kind of three chords and telling a story that would be very lazy world building mm-hmm. um only i mean obviously if you know it's like a post-apocalyptic thing in our world or whatever that would be different but if it was a fantasy world and it was just like totally using 20th century concepts of of musical organization um that would take away from it a little Ah, uh, but you could totally get away i take your point but you could totally get away with that in skyrim style thing like just have them sing renaissance style music uh, yeah. and that work that that suits that suits it down to a t even though skyrim is not on earth and you know their ye olde music probably wouldn't sound like our ye olde music but like that sells the idea of it yeah um and most people uh, most people wouldn't have the ear to understand whether or not the the ye olde music is accurate uh or sounds right they just kind of like once you whack a loot on things, it's like, ah, yes, that's the old. <laughs> um, when that's obviously not the case. Do you know what I learned literally, literally yesterday? Uh, I learned a word that I've now forgotten. Uh, it's called faux, faux bourbon, I think. Okay. Something like that. And apparently this is, I never learned this in college, but it's a, uh, a sort of guiding principle of Renaissance harmony. Huh. And the idea is that it was very stylistic for them to, sorry, internet here, music nerdery, very stylistic for them to chain uh, first inversion chords together one after another in parallel motion. And that was called faux bourbon or something, which I think stands for like false root or false base or something. The idea that the, you know, the root note isn't present at all. It's okay. all just first inversion. So I was like, huh. And I was messing around on my music, uh, my muse score uh, thing yesterday. And I just like jotted down a quick piece, stringing together loads of first inversion chords. Turns out sounds shocking Renaissance. Like, <laughs> Insta Renaissance. It cool. was great. So, so that's a thing I learned yesterday. Um, always learning in life. Now, where were we? Oh yeah, bands. Have you checked out those bands? Um, I couldn't find anything on the mechanisms, um, but Steam Powered Giraffe, yeah, so they have their own fictional mythology, um, mm-hmm. with band members portraying characters both on stage and on record, uh, and there's like a, a whole fictional universe. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, ab- absolutely possible. That's your, that's, there is a story and a setting there, and the medium you are telling it through is music. There's absolutely nothing to, to say to stop that. So, so I, w- I would say, I would say look into Guar. Um, because they tell a story. Um, uh, they're extremely silly and a lot of fun. And look into Catonic, who have, as I said, several. It's kind of Lovecraftian, uh, sci-fi, high fantasy stuff. It's pretty cool. So, uh, real-time follow-up before we crack into a bit of world building. Uh, it's the the music thing I talked about a second ago. Um, is mm-hmm. Faux Bourdon, uh, F-A-U-X-B-O-U-R-D-O-N, not Faux Bourbon, Faux Bourdon. And I'm I'm assuming it's pronounced all okay. French-like. Um, so I'll show a link to that in the show notes for any music nerds who want to check it out. Um, just correcting myself on air. <laughs> okay. I would expect so. so. <laughs> uh, Bill, you have some world billing for us. Uh, Give us a shtick and then read it out. So, last episode, 
you asked to learn more about the structure of the Tamar Company. Mm-hmm. And uh, who am I to deny the fans? <laughs> so that is what I have written. I have written the constitution of the Tamar Trading Company. Legalese incoming, folks. <laughs> you know the way that you say sometimes my writing is a little bit too archaic? Mm. Strap in. <laughs> <laughs> The Constitution of the Tamar Trading Company Hereby, founded in the great city of Jakav, a company and association of traders and people of worth, to undertake trade activities, hereby defined as trade of goods, prospecting, exploration, and all associated activities required for the protection, security, and fulfillment of these pursuits according to the rights ancient and perfect granted to us by tradition, by our heritage, and by our gods. Hereby, we secure permission to build, to commission the building, or to otherwise procure vessels, factories, warehouses, and other such necessary constructions to undertake trade activities. Governance of this company shall be undertaken by a board of finance, invested here with the authority to set overall company policy and direct the activities of all subsidiary entities and organizations. Membership of this board of finance shall comprise shareholders of the company, agents of the company, and vessel captains of senior rank, selected by a general vote of all shareholders of the company, and representatives of each subsidiary entity, chosen by selection from within the subsidiary entity they represent. No individual may hold two memberships of the Board of Finance. Ownership of this company shall be divided into equal shares that may be freely traded. Ownership of a single share grants a single vote in matters pertaining to membership of the Board of Finance. Subsidiary entities may be granted authority under the Board of Finance to undertake trade activities on behalf of the company with such exceptions and limits as defined by the Board of Finance. Subsidiary entities are not permitted to issue shares. Subsidiary entities are permitted to issue bonds and loans against their own ventures. The company fleet and armed forces are the entity in possession of the company comprising the total sum of the company's vessels and ordnance, secured in order to preserve the security of the company's trade activities. Authority under the Board of Finance to command the fleet and armed forces and manage military affairs is granted to the military commission, comprising vessel captains of senior rank elected from among their number. The Tamar Company currently comprises the following subsidiary entities. Western Office Eastern Office Southern Office Usin Office Anches Office Transolien Office Hoi Tan Office. Cool. Two quick things. Uh, mm-hmm. One, 
I don't know what I'm going to put music. What what music goes under a piece of legalese? <laughs> I that, don't know. That's going to be an interesting adventure. And the other one is that just, last... Just a lute, make it sound renaissance. Uh, I was going to say actually no music <laughs> and maybe try and put some reverb on your voice and make it sound like you're reading it in a like courtroom. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're doing that then. <laughs> Bill agrees. Uh, don't hold me to that internet. You, well, sure, you've heard what it is. Um, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> um, the, the other thing is that last bit where you listed out the various subsidies. You, you have a really good sort of robocall voice. Western office. Eastern office. It was real like, like I'm calling my ISP because I have a complaint. They're like, for, for uh, home and broadband services, press one. <laughs> Western office. <laughs> Eastern office. <laughs> it was really good. Um, yeah, so uh, the I'm kind of I'm kind of a bit like a bit sad is wrong word, but bit um, I don't know. Um, sad maybe. Yeah, let's go with sad. That we probed the structure of the company so much last month because a lot of this um it feels not new to me. A lot of this feels like. It's stuff that we kind of... It feels like you've codified some of our uh, ramblings last month, which is cool, but I should have kept my trap shut next month and waited for this, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. But still, really great. Um, the uh, A style point here for anyone not reading, uh, Bill has capitalised the first word or two of each paragraph here. Do you have any notions to why that occurs? None. Yeah, it's just a thing... Well, that- I mean, maybe, maybe it's just like... So you're, you're you're scanning the document and you want to get to the bit about ownership. You can see ownership in bigger letters. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that works fine, but it works less okay when the first word is like hereby or according. That doesn't really... Yeah. It, it, seem, it seems to me, because again, this is a style I see an awful lot, uh, but it seems a better thing to do would be to capitalize all like proper nouns. So instead of capitalizing mm. hereby or whatever, or say instead of... Yeah, instead of uh, capitalizing according, capitalize rights, ancient, and perfect. So then when you're scanning, you go, oh, that's the rights, ancient, and perfect bit, as opposed to just, like, the the first word. I, I don't know what... You know what? What? I might actually do that. Oh, there you go. Oh, that, that, that yeah, changed, I, that... Might, I might change some of that around. <laughs> that's okay. a good point. So listeners are now reading a document that we are not reading. Uh, <laughs> so that's going to be interesting. Um but, uh, yeah, okay, cool. Uh, can I go through my points? Please do, please do. Um, first, first paragraph. <laughs> the Constitution of Tamara Tra- Trading Company, paragraph one. Uh, hereby found in the great city of Jikav, a company and association of traders, and here's a bit I would like to know about, people of worth. Um, people of worth is capitalized. So that mm. makes me think that it's not just like, rich people or entitled people like this is a proper noun for a group uh am i right what is people of worth no it's it's not a specific group but it is so the, the kind of the context of this um of, of this document i originally wrote this as a charter and then i was thinking but that a charter is kind of the authority being granted by someone else and that doesn't fit in so well with how i've thought about the the overall shape of Abeski culture. So I decided it's a constitution. It is their own declaration of their own intent. And they do the Tamar Company works on its own authority. Um and that's a very roundabout way of, of not even actually answering your question. Um <laughs> but people of worth 
is 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 a kind of a an understood term within uh, Aveski culture and legal culture that kind of just means um both uh aristocratic people and people of uh, sufficient wealth. Mm. I've been watching Downton Abbey of late, Bill. Really? Is it any good? Uh, I, I think it's great. I hate period dramas with a passion. I find them dull and indulgent. But Downton Abbey is great crack. Uh, so, like, that that uh, that review should give you an idea that it's, it, it is actually genuinely a really good show. Um, but I bring this up to say that in it, there's this tension between, like, the, the landed gentry, like the aristocracy, and yeah. people who are just rich. And there's yes. a kind of, like, even though we're kind of, like, I guess we we should on paper be part of the same sort of societal rank. We're not because you're not you you like for example they they mentioned the show that uh, the difference between us is that we're both stinking rich and we both are extremely privileged. But you make your money, whereas I inherit my money, and that is a, somehow a, a, a call for distinction in this culture. Um, yeah, I find it interesting that it's in 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 Nebeski culture. It seems to be that that distinction is not there. It's just. If you're stinking rich, you're all good to go. Be you an ar- uh, aristocrat or just a self-made person. Yeah, so it, it's a little different. The there is a a bit of distinction, but it's it's not nearly as strong. Um, the they're not as concerned overall with inheritance and blood and family. Uh, the aristocracy exists, but it is possible. It is more possible to access it through through having wealth. Um, the the interesting thing about what you were saying there about um we're we're both stinking rich is that's that kind of is the difference in in that if you're novo riche and you lose your money you're not novo riche anymore but if you're gentry and you lose your money you're still gentry. Mm. That's yeah. and that's kind of what that's like the interesting dynamic there in in a lot of that um historical stuff and I probably exists to some extent today. And that, like, the rules don't make any sense. Um, the rules for behavior and conduct don't make any sense because you don't, you can't learn them. You just have to be born into knowing them. And that, that's a barrier to entry. Yeah, and a, a deliberate one, uh, I'm assuming. Yeah, assume. oh, absolutely. An absolutely deliberate barrier to entry, yeah. No. Uh, um, it, is, it is fun watching, though, Downton and kind of experiencing those things and them talking about those barriers and kind of being like, why on earth particularly uh maggie smith's character because she's she's kind of uh her she's the sorry you, you haven't seen this she's like the the um she's the, the dowager she's the yeah. dowager exactly and so she's kind of like almost like the kingpin who kind of like she is a <laughs> she is authority <laughs> maggie smith the kingpin <laughs> the dowager Ju- uh, the dowager duchess as played by james gandolfini <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, but she has kind of like authority over everyone, or at least she has the social uh, status to be able to speak out against everyone. Uh, whether her actions mm-hmm. actually affect things is is debatable, but she she's she's on top of the tree, so to speak. So it falls on her character an awful lot to kind of be the sort of um, gatekeeper in a way, like to tell mm-hmm. everyone why they're not following all those archaic, strange, opaque rules. And it's really fun as a person who's, you know, not landed gentry to like look into that world <clears> and kind of observe like a voyeur and be like, you strange, strange people. It's great crack. That's something that I really enjoyed in Poldark. Uh, 
that his character is re- like consciously and very deliberately rejects a lot of that. So he's like a slightly kind of scandalous character um, to the other the other uh, aristocrats, um, and he behaves in like all these unacceptable ways. But he's like he's really cool in a lot of ways too. For that, and, it, it, and it's mad. Sorry, I realize we're getting away from this constitution, but you know, hey, this is what the show is now. Um, the it's mad the way it's a mad like looking at what is considered to be unacceptable behavior. Like, um, at least in the case of Downton, it's like it seems to be just these completely low key, arbitrary things where you're kind of like, why is everyone getting their their knickers in a twist here? Because someone uh, kissed someone who was not in the correct social, and you're like, but does it? It doesn't matter. And this weird sort of like honor tradition that goes on as well. Like we don't say this to this to this person because that person is this person. This but this weird. It's just the whole thing is very strange. Looking out from uh, from the outside. Point point being, sorry, just to take it back to the constitution. Uh, la- the divide between landed gentry and just rich people. Uh, is is uh, very obvious in Downton. Uh, I think it's cool that in a Besky culture, that divide seems to not be so uh, obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's that's what I was going for. So, uh, second paragraph, uh, to undertake uh, trade activities hereby defined as trade of goods, prospecting, exploration, and all associated activities required for protection, security, and fulfillment of these pursuits. Uh, I like, Just for a whirling point, I really like that because that final line, the all associated activities, really grants the company uh, the power, or at least they grant themselves the power to just like do all sorts of nastiness into pursuit of <laughs> trade goods, prospecting, exploration. I think that's really cool. And, you know, reading between the lines is a good bit of character building for this co- uh, this company. So, well played. Thank you. I'm assuming that was the purpose. Yeah, like, pretty much. Um, you know, they're a, a quite a militarized organization. And, like, most of what we've seen about them has been from a, a kind of a military point of view. Mm-hmm. And this is the authority by which they do that protection, security, and fulfillment of these pursuits has a very broad interpretation. And, you know, anyone who is familiar with anything about, you know, how militaries get used in colonialism are, even in kind of contemporary authoritarianism, protection and security are kind of, they're they're used to excuse a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like, obviously, because if you go to someone, we will provide you protection and security. You're like, that is a good thing. Like, these are good things, and it's very easy to ride those good things uh, to um, to not good places. Um, mm-hmm. Like, it's just a good sales pitch to just tie everything, tie your ideology to protection security. Um, paragraph three, according to the cap letters, rights ancient and perfect, granted to us by tradition, by our heritage, and by our gods. Um, talk to me about this rights ancient and perfect. That seems like a thing. This document doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's based on uh, a long tradition of Abeski culture and Abeski legality, um, that they have the right to organize and to trade and to create such organizations. Um, and that it's it's not really, they're not, as I said, this isn't a charter. It's not coming from uh, being granted by a monarch or a state. This is building on a on a thing within their culture that they have the right to do this autonomously and to establish their autonomy this way. 
Right, but the the rights ancient and perfect is this um is this like a book? Is this a codified thing? Like, can can an Abeski person wanting to know more about the Abeski culture go to their like Library of Congress and pick up a copy of Rights Ancient and Perfect, or is this more of a, a metaphorical statement? It's it's more like a an oral tradition or a kind of a common law kind common of situation. Law. That's exactly what I was about to say yeah. next. Common law. Okay, cool. Um, uh, and also, I love it, it, the shock and manifest destiny vibes here of that third paragraph. So I really like that. Um, <laughs> not because I like Manifest Destiny, but the kind of <laughs> that, that they, like it's a, it is a God-given right for us to uh, trade and prospect and explore. And aren't these all wonderful things? I think that that that's pretty cool. Um, so next thing I'd like to know is, uh, could you talk to me a little bit about how the membership for the Board of Finance works, how the governance works? The the finance board the board of finance is the kind of overall governing body, and they set um, they set policy and they uh, have their own budget, which like they they take proceeds from from below and then they can assign them um, you know year on year or period on period, and they make those decisions and make kind of decisions about um, overall directions to take things like that. Um, membership is made up of uh, shareholders or agents of the company, so the people like directly employed by the company in roles, um, are vessel captains, so the, the military element, um, and those are elected by shareholders. So if you, if you have a share, if you own a share, you have a vote, and the, the members are voted on by all of the shareholders. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And also... Um, representatives of the subsidiary entities, so that's what I've I've listed down below, uh, and also actually the the military commission, um, I think is probably likely to be represented on the on the finance board ex- explicitly represented on on the board of finance, um, but in that case, the the subsidiary entity will in itself have its own process for deciding who is appointed to the board of finance on their behalf. So this this feels to me very much like. IRL corporate culture in a bit, uh, a little bit, correct? Um, I guess as regards the the shareholders voting yeah. a bit, but I think I think in real life they tend to vote more directly on issues. Um, whereas here the the board of finance decides on issues, and they are just appointed by shareholders. I mm. I don't know that for sure, but I I think I think that might be the case. Cool. Ownership bill. Can I talk about ownership? Um, oh, but before, the, just the thing about the no individual may hold two memberships of the Board of Finance. So if you're appointed as the, the representative of the Western office, you cannot also be um, voted in by shareholders. Is that because one time someone did hold two members and there was problems with that? So they had to retcon and be all like, no, lads, we can't do that anymore. Uh, probably not in the history of the Tamar company, but it's probably something that's happened in other older companies and that they, they knew to, to write in, um, mm. a, a, a block against the new, new, the new to write, write in that it was not permitted. Cool. I like, um, ownership bill. Mm-hmm. Ownership of this company shall be divided into equal shares that may be freely traded. Ownership of a single share grants a single vote in matters pertaining to membership of the Board of Finance. Um, mm-hmm. The 
possible alternative here that's wrong to mind. Like this, this reads perfectly fine. Like that makes perfect sense. Um, but uh, I've been looking a little bit into how German football works. This is related. Bear with me. Uh, <laughs> and in in Germany, apparently there's I don't know much about it. So Germans, please feel free to correct me here. But apparently there's a rule where uh, a football club cannot be must be fan owned, which is oh, cool. this fifth. 50 plus one rule, uh, which I think, if I recall correctly, means that 51% of the company has to be fan-owned. So you can have, like, you know, your big mogul owning 49%, but 51% must be the people. Um, And therefore, that means, like, there is a kind of, like, unequal sort of voting power going on, like, skewed in favor of the fans, because that's obviously the system. Um, It just got me thinking, this, this line about divided equally shares, it got me thinking about, like, could you set up a corporate structure a bit like the Bundesliga um, that has this sort of like waiting going on to favor one thing or the other, as opposed to like you have a share and that share is equal no matter who you are. Um, that's not really a question, just amusing more than anything else. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, I, I'm sure you have kind of examples of cooperatives that work that way you know, and yeah. worker owned organizations that work that way. Um but as as we have previously established, the the Abeski aren't super keen on the old labour rights. <laughs> Understatement of the century there. Um, cool, and that is that's all the notes I have highlighted. As always, what have I missed, and what would you like to point out? So subsidiary entities um, are not permitted to issue shares. Can issue bonds and loans. Um, I mean, I think that's all fairly. Yeah straightforward um the company fleet yeah i just i thought it would be make sense to have an explicit explanation of how the commercial and the explicitly militaristic side of the of the company interacted um so the the vessels are somewhat autonomous that the 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 captain is in charge and they get orders from the the military commission um, but they will be assigned to a certain task and it will usually be given to one of the subsidiary entities, like one of the offices. So if your patrol vessel is being sent to Hoitan, uh, then the military commission will give you orders that you are to go to Hoitan and to place you under the jurisdiction of the the local commander there, mm-hmm. whoever it is. Um that's just that's roughly how that works. Um, the subsidiary entities. Um, I'm actually going to refer to the map for explaining what's going on with these. Links in the show notes. Links in the show notes. So remember, uh, a year or maybe a little bit more ago, I I gave you a map of uh, the Abesque region. Mm-hmm. Do you have that there? Yep, got it. Great. Um, so you can see here. Uh, I'll just go through roughly where the. Uh, the, each of the offices has responsibility for. So the Western office covers between, um, well, basically west of Mearsphere. So any operations between Jakav and Mearsphere and further west than Jakav and the Selen Lake uh, and as far south as that line of mountains there mm-hmm. that, that runs uh, east to, or west to east. Um, the Eastern office is then on the other side from Mearsphere to Utvev. Yes. The southern office is kind of the region above Lansk 
and like running from Lansk to Vilv, that sort of rectangular area there, and the province of Vikol. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the Usen office. Now, the Usen office, see if you look to the west of Lansk, you've got this little triangle with the mountains on top and then mountains and the, the river to the south. Yep. So that's the Usen province. And then, so the Usen office is responsible for that. And then the whole area beyond the Usen belt. Okay. Yep. Um, the Anches office is responsible for the Anches and as far south as Ebwar. Mm-hmm. The Trans-Olien office is responsible for Atramia and Nalmia. The um, the Olien is that river running from Vilv to Otveven into the sea. That's the Olien. So it's the on the far side of that. Mm-hmm. And the Hoytan office then is responsible for Hoytan. No. Unsurprisingly. That makes sense. I haven't seen this map in ages. It looks really cool. Thank you. Um, I really I really enjoy this map. We need to refer to this map more when we're talking about the various things. Because we're always like, oh yeah, Mirsphere. And then like it occurs to me that I noted where Mirsphere was once uh, over a year <laughs> ago. And now I'm like, oh, Mirsphere is way up north. Totally forgotten that. Um, I may even, if I had the time, I don't know if I will, I may even throw... Uh, just little borders on that map for people to see where these um various di- jurisdictions are. Um, yeah, sure. If I have the time, I don't hold me to that internet. Um, cool. I mean, I, I I can I can give you a, a sketch with that on it if you want, if you have the original file and you want to add stuff to it. I can do just it. draw out the appro- approximate. Do it. Definitely, let's cool. do that, because that'll be really easy to follow people. Um, uh, I did have other thoughts that I couldn't kind of figure out how to make explicit in a constitution. Um, so uh, the subsidiary entities can be obviously created and dissolved as appropriate. And in the example of the Usen office, that Usen province area, that triangular area, probably would have been the the responsibility of the southern office previously. But a proposal was made and probably a lot of capital was invested by someone to set that up as an office in itself and open up the, the area beyond the belt as as an extension of it mm-hmm. um so th- they're they're somewhat fluid and the offices kind of work fairly independently um potentially at odds with each other at times you know in competition with each other um but overall they all generate whatever profits or, or, or things that they generate a, a significant cut of that is passed up to the board of finance um and as I said, the Board of Finance decides how to spend the funds it has. Um, shares are a thing, as as you can see. Um, you you can buy shares, but the the financial culture hasn't gone very far in kind of the secondary market of like reselling shares or speculating on the future or pre the, the future profits of shares. That that isn't a thing that's really begun yet. Um, so you you can't like the, the the very very high finance stuff of it is isn't really an element here. Um, let me just look over the notes I took while I was coming up with this and see if there's anything else I've missed. I've missed. D- does it make sense? I mean, yes. <laughs> like, does, okay. does your does your prose does the actual constitution make sense? I mean, like, does does the the system I'm op- I'm describing does it make sense? Like, does it seem like it would operate? Like, there's nothing. That doesn't make sense yeah. to you about how th- where things go or what things happen. 
No, no, no. Everything seems perfectly in order. Um, yeah, there's nothing in it that I think, oh God, Bill has broken his system here. I think I think it all works. Okay, cool. Cool. Um, there may be other stuff that I, I am forgetting to bring up, but I think I've got the 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 general um the general shape of it. Um, I mean, like, there's obviously there can be different specifics. Like the I, I've just said, there is a board of finance. I haven't talked about its voting procedures or its memberships or anything. Um, but that's a little bit more fluid anyway, and um, sure. that can change from time to time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and well, I mean, I guess maybe, I guess maybe that is probably something that would be codified in a constitution. Um, oh yeah, like there there, there are but, there are rules for it, but they're not they're not constitutional. They they are. Sure. changed you know they're they're uh, legislative for want of a better word sure that makes sense um yeah no i think that works i like it i like it it's good i Thank think you. the the map with the regions is going to help those who so should definitely do that okay cool yeah well i'll uh, i'll try send that to you later today so awesome sauce cool uh constitution tomorrow company done question mark and terror bang <laughs> uh done check mark tick check mark <laughs> Excellent. Uh, let's do some Wollerst um, World Lang Review Showcase thing. <laughs> um, have you watched these videos? I have watched these videos. So just um, there's not a whole bunch to talk about here. There's one point I want to bring up. Uh, did, for anyone who doesn't know or is not following the channel for whatever reason, uh, part of this sort of like quasi-hiatus strategy of mine to sort of like ease up the workload but to also try and keep some degree of videos coming over the next weeks and months uh, is doing this uh, showcase thing where I write into people or people write into me um, and uh, submit their worlds and languages for review or showcase. And I was kind of like a little bit hesitant to do it because I thought like, oh, there's no real way of doing it without kind of like coming across as a bit of a dick just saying this bit's bad redo this bit don't like this bit um but apparently people don't think that way and they're actually really happy with the sort of like uh constructive criticisms and i'm having much more fun doing this than i thought i would do like it's really cool to just like go into the inbox in the morning and to to be flooded with various weird and wonderful creations and it's really it's really really great fun um so i'm pleasantly surprised that emergency hiatus content is actually turning out to be very fulfilling um so it's really cool um do you have anything to bring up uh with regards to videos any points and then i might close with my point um there's there's something very satisfying about the 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 micro level of 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 this because we just see like a little snapshot or a single concept um and you know very often we 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 get presented with like quite broad world building or or big ideas or a lot of information but just saying you know there's just this this one location or this one one concept um it's kind of cool um yep I liked um I liked all of them. They they were all they were all inventive and I, I got something out of out of all of them. Um there there was an interesting um comparison to make. The um the, the one from uh, Game Saucer. Yes, which was the 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 origin myth of the the different gods. Um mm-hmm. there was an interesting comparison to make there with uh, Dane Meads one which I think was in the same video. Yeah, um, which was about the 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 kind of the cosmological origin of magic, um, 
And I thought there, there was something quite similar in both of them. Almost that you could look at Game Saucer's cre- creation myth as a mythological interpretation of what Dane Mead was describing scientifically. Oh, that's great. See what I'm getting I am, at? That is so good. I am mortified I didn't think of that. That would have been a wonderful way of tying those two up. You're dead right. That is brilliant. Like the actual science is as Dane Mead describes, but like culture interprets it like a uh, game saucer uh, put forth. That's a really, really, really good idea. That's a good shout, Bill. Um, that was just that was one of the things that occurred to me. Um the the sport that was really the Tal Tal Hydar or Tal Hydar sport was was real fun. Um although I'm gonna disagree with you on something here. Oh dear. Mm-hmm. We're having an argument. We are gonna an argument over sports. We've I've never been so confirmed <laughs> in my ma- masculinity. Um <laughs> There was the thing about the about the fights, right? Mm-hmm. And you were saying like it would be really easy to to exploit, and I I completely agree with that. Um, but by by just getting one of your other players to to attack their star player, and it would and that it would be a totally um a totally unfair fight because it would be just a regular person against a star athlete. Sure, well, a star athlete isn't necessarily going to be a good fighter, and being good at playing the sport isn't the same as being good at at combat um and there's yeah. that's a thing in, in ice hockey there's there's a there's a role for for players in ice hockey to just start fights and and be ready to to fight the other team and presumably they have to be you know reasonably good at actually playing hockey as well but it is a it is a role assigned within a team I- that's fair. Now, the impression I get, I didn't get the impression there was kind of like a defined role, like the fighter. The impression I got was that anyone can become the fighter if they accept Oh, the no, no. I, I know, I know. Okay, and like, yeah, okay, it's fine. the same it's same in ice hockey. Like, anyone can get in a scrap. But, you know, you might have someone on the team who's a bit more adept at either starting fights or intervening when a fight starts. Um, yeah. Oh. And, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the... Um, yeah, like... They not, might not be a better actual player, although you know, presumably they'll be a good player. But you know, they, their their role will be more so weighted towards towards fighting than towards scoring goals. That's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, I take that. Uh, your criticism is valid. Um, <laughs> the what I thought immediately after actually filming that, I thought of a, uh, another way of kind of thinking about not reinterpreting but rewriting the rules slightly. Um, mm-hmm. would be the notion of champions. Uh, so if if a fight breaks out, the the two parties involved can assign champions. And that would be a way of, uh, if we take my view about the star athlete being also like, just the star athlete being just amazing at everything, which I now see as a bit flawed. But if we take that flu view, um, if you assign champions then, then that kind of, mitigates that exploit in a way and i think brings in a level of strategy where it's like the team have to confer and go well you know like bob took a lot of hits now bob would ordinarily be the person to fight but he took a lot of hits so maybe we'll sacrifice this guy and i think that could that could be a way of of circumventing a possible exploit Um, it's it's like having someone like to take penalties (laughs) I, i mean yeah but like that's kind of what happens like the person who goes down in the box in in soccer, they don't have to be the penalty. Yeah, taker. yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, 
Um, and all, just really quick as well, on, on the subject of hockey, I know nothing about hockey other than it's played on ice. Um, the What is that crack with the fighting though? Like, is that actually okay within the rules or is it just tolerated conduct? Like, do the rules say it is permissible to strike people and there should be no punishment? Or what? what is the crack there? Like, how do they get away with clobbering each other the whole time? I um, I don't know enough about it, but I think it is a... a uh cultural rather than explicit thing i don't think it's actually allowed by the letter of the law but it just it's really really common <laughs> that's mad like and uh, sport increasingly for me uh because i watch a lot of sport and a, a lot of diverse sports uh my the impression of it is that increasingly it's becoming a um safer institution like um like formula 1 for example they're constantly ramping up safety measures and changing the rules for to, to make things safer um football over the years has gotten rid of an awful lot of danger of uh, soccer should i say has gotten rid of an awful lot of dangerous practices in the view of safety which is a good mm-hmm. thing um it seems strange to me knowing nothing about ice hockey uh that it's just like that's still tolerated like out and out fights because like obviously that like out and out fights you run the you run the risk of like you know massively damaging someone and not damaging someone in uh, as a result of playing the game in a way but damaging someone as a result of like an extra an extracurricular fight yeah <laughs> that that yeah it just seems it seems weird the way the modern world is going with regards to sports and ice hockey seems not to be doing that now again mm. i know nothing about ice hockey so i could be entirely wrong and in fact fighting is on its way out i don't know i'm sure our canadians will let us know um but yeah i've always thought oh hockey is just being strange that way yeah i'm, I'm interested about it Especially because yeah. I like actual combat sports to, <laughs> to to see how it works here that you know fighting isn't it's it's not part of the rules but it's a thing that happens and presumably it has its own unofficial codes of conduct for for how you're supposed to do it or whatever I don't know oh I'd I'd love to know uh, Canadians who are into ice hockey uh, let us know are there unofficial codes of conduct there like what 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 if i am to get in a scrap of bill in the ring what do i kind of have to culturally be aware of let us know because like there must be something like um that would be really interesting um yeah uh any any further points uh to bring up on the videos um no i don't think so no. um good work everyone yeah <laughs> keep it up uh, so 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 my point that i want to bring up was just uh Question I want to put to you, Bill. Um, I got slightly berated in the most recent uh, World Lang Review Showcase thing video mm-hmm. for bringing up uh, colorblindness in relation to flag design. Yeah. Um, they, the, the, the comments ran the gamut from like just outright mean to kind of like quizzical. And people were like, why talk about colorblindness when flags back in the day? We're definitely not constructive with colorblindness in mind. Like you know, no one, no one sat down in Hungary whatever after the the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and went, okay, we need to make sure that this red and this green really work together. They just chose a red and green fabric from the dyes that are available. You know, without without thinking about colorblindness. So people were kind of like, is it is it right? Writes the wrong word, but is it uh, advisable to think in terms of colorblindness when we're trying to design flags for ye olde countries? Uh, is it more uh, historically appropriate to not think in terms of colorblindness? Um, what What are your thoughts on this? Um, that was something that did occur to me as as I watched it. Um, 
And my initial reaction was kind of similar. It was like, oh, but, you know, that's that's not necessarily an in a relevant in-universe thing. Um, but then I kind of reckoned we, we have to be conscious of ableism and accessibility and stuff in the stories and the, the, the art that we create. So it is relevant from that point of view. And as I recall, that was for a uh web comic or a web series mm-hmm. the flags mm-hmm. were um so you've got a i mean it's it's not invalid to consider it um from that point of view like you have a, a real life audience who you want to be reading this thing and it's good f- to make it accessible to people yeah you know? that, that, um, that and was, also yeah. uh I would imagine that it is probably a thing in uh, contemporary design to to account for that kind of thing. Or if it isn't, again, it would think that would be ought to be considered. Um, so it may, in fact, be relevant to the setting. Um, and even if it's not contemporary necessarily, then I mean, maybe within the setting, people do care about color blindness. So go for it. <laughs> Yeah, the thing I think people didn't, or I didn't make very clear, was that, like, I I don't, I would never expect someone to make that explicit, you know, to be, you know, character A and character B sit down together and be like, have you heard the king is creating a new flag? And then character B, like, you know, in the story, in the novel goes, oh, and he's being very particular about his color choices for for the blind people like that that is obviously massively jarring uh my point would be that like doing these little colorblind checks has no uh impact at all on the believability of these flags like because again if i if i do a color check on the uh new hungary flag after the dissolution of the austro-hungarian empire and i choose appropriate shades of red and green the consumer of my content is still going to look at the flag and go it's red white and green i think that's the flag of hungary i hope i think it is yeah um they're going to go the one you used as an example for that bit of the video was very like the hungarian flag it was, yes. I think that's probably why I'm immediately jumping to Hungary in my, in my mind now. Um, but like, yeah, no consumer of the content is going to go, oh, wait, that's historically inaccurate because I can tell that that particular shade of green and that particular shade of red has been chosen with colorblindness in mind. Like, no one no one can see these things. Um, the only person who would realize these things would be someone who's colorblind. And they'll just be all like, oh, I appreciate that, pal. Thanks. Yeah. Um, it doesn't make them any more or less if you hide your work it doesn't make the flags any more or less historically believable i think in my mind yeah Um, that's fair now it'd be a different thing if i don't know like uh let's say you included uh this is i can't think of a good example so just bear with this an imperfect analogy if you included a representation of sign language say on a flag like that's that would be obviously you know very jarring um, even though it would be a nod to people who speak language, sign language to be like, oh, cool, a bit of ASL on this flight. That's really cool. But it would be really jarring uh, historically-wise. But color selection, no. As well, long as the colors are, you know. Not if it was the in-universe sign language. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah. flags Sorry, have I, text on them. Sure. Uh, I mean more as in like our sign language, as in like you write a, in Skyrim, there is a flag that has ASL on it. Because... Yeah someone's like let's give a nod to the ASL people which is a good thing but it would be extremely that would be extremely jarring and feel like it's it's not property of that world uh, yeah but I mean tweaking tweaking shades of color that's 
there's no way anyone can spot that unless you're colorblind. Like, I, I see, I see what you're saying there, and my initial reaction is to agree. But also, I mean, why can we, why can we gloss over the use of Latin script? Oh and yeah, not yeah, find that's that fair. Jarring? I guess that's interesting. I guess that's probably because there is like historical precedent in terms of how we create our fiction. So like there is a precedent that like uh, the standard language in a setting is always going to be English in the English speaking. Like it's it's Star Wars people speak English and that's their Mm. basic and that's just there's precedence for that or there. Yeah, there's precedence for using the Latin script everywhere just because that's what we need to use. Um, So I guess anytime you go against that precedence, it seems weird and jarring in a way that using the Latin script wouldn't be. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I think that though. is probably true, but I think that's worth examining and worth interrogating. Oh, sure. Yeah, 100% agree. 100% agree. Um, but anyway, point still holds. Uh, I, I would always strongly recommend doing the little colour check and then just never telling anyone about it and just knowing that people who are colourblind will look at it and be all like, huh, that's nice. Yeah. I think that's a good working protocol to go by. Sure. Um, so that is... That is all I have to say about uh, world language review showcase thing. More of them coming, like I said, because this is kind of hiatus content. Um, hopefully, hopefully, uh, I can get back to artifacts in proper because I got I got a pronouns video in the in the bag, um, or at least in the works, and I really want to make it because it's gonna be really fun. Oh, that wasn't just like a, a hypothetical future one. That is the next one you have planned. That is literally the next one I've planned. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, and I really, I really do want to make because turns out pronouns way more interesting than you think. Yeah. Um, in terms of like linguistically, I don't want to talk about it now because of spoilers. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I can't wait to make it. I just, I just really hope I find the time over the next weeks and months. Uh, but if not, more World Lang review showcase thing. Check out the video, videos in the description and uh, yeah, submit as well. I'll leave the submission criteria in the description as well. So yeah, please uh, do. You can ch- check it out. Um. All right, okay, cool. Shall we go into Green Room? Let's Green Room. On Shomra Gloss. <laughs> green Room. Uh, two things, Bank of Artifexia and a plug. In the previous videos, or in the previous uh, one, of, one of my videos, uh, I gave a shout out to uh, a chap called Joshua Geem. And his first time novel, Heaven's Expedition. Um, I'm not being paid for this on this show to talk about uh, Joshua. I'm just just want to give the guy an extra shout out because I I really did genuinely enjoy his book. It was very fun, um, and it was hugely applicable to Artifexia. Uh, so uh, strongly urge people to go pick up the book, um, Heaven's Expedition by Joshua Geem. It's a Uh, a sort of like YA style um, rip-roaring sort of like action-packed adventure um, set on a a tidy locked world. And that's the key thing that I think has interest for people in Artifexia. Um, Joshua explores the culture around tidy locked worlds and how they organize their the time, how they organize like sleep cycles, given that there's no real day night going on, all that sort of jazz is is brought up in the book. And it's done really well and it's it's a ton of fun. And Joshua also came across as just being a really chill, lovely bloke. Um so support independent first time novelists. Uh go go check it out if if that is to your liking. Links in the show notes. 
Cool. Uh, yeah, okay, so that's that. Uh, thanks again. Oh, and also, yeah, thanks again, Joshua, for reaching out and sponsoring the show. It's really great of you, like, and I hope uh, I can drive some traffic to you. Um, so that's the extra little plug. Uh, Bank of Artifexia bill. So this this month's uh, contributor to the Bank of Artifexia is uh, myself and my family. Um, I found a heap of notes uh, in, in our house um, who, that I have now come into uh, possession of. Um, and I'm adding them to the Bank of Artifexia. Um, so, links in the show notes, everyone. You can go check it out. So, what I have, again, links in the show notes, I have uh, Deutschmark. So, old German pre-euro currency. I have a 20, a 10 Deutschmark, a 20 Deutschmark, and a 100 Deutschmark. So, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a ye olde baller here, rolling in the money. Um... I have Zaudi Real, five Zaudi Real. Um, mm-hmm. Now, this is, as with the Deutschmark, this is old money. Um, so according to my research, I, I could be wrong, but according to my research, this uh, this five Zaudi Real uh, was out of date in 1984. So that's awesome. Okay. It's a very old note and I really like it. Um, I have one Australian dollar due. And this is also out of date and also withdrawn, apparently, in 1984. Again, I could be wrong, but uh, it's certainly not modern currency. Uh, this this one in particular, uh, I want to give a shout out for kind of very cool design. Um, it, it does a good job, and I think a much better job than the current Australian note I have, of kind of like incorporating... The, the cultures at play in Australia, obviously, you know, the Anglo-Saxon culture, like the Queen's on it, uh, looking very young, um, and on the reverse, or the opposite. recognise her. I know, right? I I listened to her, her speech uh, that she gave on Veterans Day this year, and she's 94, man. She looks mm-hmm. like, she looks like she's just after retirement. No, maybe not. She looks like she's 70 odd. Like, Whatever that woman is taking, I want some of. Like, she's just immortal. It's crazy. It must be the reptile blood. Um, but yeah, so anyhow, this, this Australian dollar uh, is really cool because it, 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 it has the queen on it, uh, but it also has an awful lot of uh, what looks like Aboriginal art. Uh, and a lot mm. of the kind of like, uh, the design language of this is very informed by Aboriginal art. So I think it does a good job of melding the cultures. And for a note that's ostensibly like brown, uh, it actually is really nice. So I, I really enjoy that note. Um, I think it's really cool. Uh, and then we have 20, uh, what is this, Kenyan shillings. Uh, again, uh, old, uh, expired in 1982, apparently. Um, or no, sorry, no, this wasn't withdrawn in 1982. This is a note that's marked as being 1st of January, 1982. So when this uh, went out, I don't know, but it certainly, it was around in 1982. Um, yeah, and again, I really dig the artwork on the back of this lad. Um, it's got this cool, like, um, Afro-pointillism vibe to it, which I think is is really baller. Really, really looks great. Um, so I enjoy that one. And then we have uh, 250, 250 Cypriot Mill. I think it's pronounced Mill. Could be Meal. I don't know. Um... But yeah, again, this is very old. This is 1964 is when this uh, was was out of circulation or made. I can't remember. So it's shocking old. It's actually a little bit fragile to hold. Um, so that's class. 
can add that to the stockpile. And then finally, finish up with 20 French franc. And this note is an abomination and I hate it. Like, it is It is so... Maybe it's weathered and faded over time. That could probably be it. But it's so meh. Like, if you squint your eyes, uh, like, blur your eyes out and look at it, it looks essentially like a tea bag stained sheet of paper. Like, it's just... <laughs> It, it's lots and lots of brown with no contrast. Like the back of it, you, you know, the, 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 the 20, the, the number 20 is essentially blurring into the background. Like it's just, it looks, it looks awful. And there's this giant white patch that's obviously the hologram or whatever, but it's weird that it's just sticking there. Like someone forgot to finish the artwork. Um, it's just, I don't like, I don't like this at all. Uh, I, I know actually, do you know what it looks a little bit like? It looks a little bit like a postcard as well. And I don't think... It does look a bit like a postcard, yeah. I don't dig the French francs at all. Um, So, but there you go. Anyhow, that's a 20 French franc, and apparently that was issued in 1997. This note was issued. So, um, that's pretty cool. So, I rated... uh, Not around for very long. Oh, oh, that specific note, not that design. uh, That specific note, yeah, yeah. It just said, uh, like, all it says in 1997 is marked on the back. So, I don't know how long it's been around for... Um, but, but yeah, so raided the family's coffers there um, to get a whole bunch of monies, which I think is really cool. cool. Um, the Deutschmark as well. Sorry, let's go back to Deutschmark. Deutschmark looks shocking. It looks shocking Germanic here, right? Uh, and I'm allowed to insult Germans because I'm half German. So just brace, brace Germans. It looks very much like a German solution to like money notes. It's like, it's elegant. It's it's like good design. Everything kind of works. Efficient, clean lines. Efficient, clean lines, but fills me with no enthusiasm at all. <laughs> like it's nuts. It is baller that they have uh, my man Carl Friedrich Gauss there. Who's the other? Who's the other lady? The other lady? No, this is Antoinette von Dost uh, Hulsof. I don't know who she is. Uh, and then this lady is. Clara Schumann. Oh, they have Clara Schumann. On the 20? On the 20? No, on the 100. On the 100. Clara Schumann. For oh, that's, and that's why there's a piano on the other side of it. Okay. That would make sense, Bill. That would make sense. You're, so you're hold on. A, what's, what's on the reverse of the 20? On looks the like ref- a, a cigar? <laughs> no, man. That's a feather. It's a fe- Oh, okay. So she was a writer. Oh, was she a writer? Do you want to do a quick well, Google I, there of If that's a quill, I guess so. Annette von Dursch Holstoff. Hold on, Annette. Let me do a quick Google. Uh, Annette von Doste Doste Holstoff. I'm going to get in German. I'm like, um. Oh no! Uh, so she was a writer, a 19th century German writer and composer. Oh. Uh, she cool. was one of the most important German poets and author of the novella Die uh, Judenbuche. So the, the young books or the books of youth. Um, no, you didn't be in Jews. Sorry. The the Jews, the Jews, Bucha? I don't know what this is. Hold on. The Jews beach, apparently. Beach is in the tree. Um, oh, okay. I completely misread that wrong. My German is just not up to scratch. But anyhow, so those are the whole heap of notes I got. Uh, and yeah. Very happy with the raid I uh, came up with. Uh, the money map, unfortunately, is not affected because these are all like out of date, uh, and lots of them are doubled for you know 
euro, for example. So like Germany is still green because I have the euro for Germany, but also have some old stuff. Um, so yeah. lots of new notes, but the money map is unaffected. Money map in the show notes, by the way. So if anyone has some currency from the countries uh, that I haven't got and you would like to send a letter that we read out on air, uh, check the show notes for all the relevant stuff. We would love to hear from you. Cool. Um, can, can we look at, at the, the people on the other notes? Let's look at the people on the other notes. Do you want so to start? Who's this, who's this on the Saudi note? I, I, I guess it's someone from the House of Saud. I would imagine some prince. I, I have no, I can't read Arabic, man, so I have no idea what who this of, is. Of course, yeah. It's, it's, um, it's gonna be, well, I used to be able to read, read Arabic, though. Really? Uh, yeah, my dad taught it to me because he learned it when he was in Saudi Arabia. Um, That's I used class. to I used I used to sign all my paintings with my name in Arabic, uh, and I've forgotten how to do that completely. Which, That's which, incredible. like, it, uh, yeah, it is, but it's kind of like I, I don't want to, you know, be massive social justice warrior here or anything, but like, it's kind of cultural appropriation Dude. that I kind that I kind of wish my father was a little bit more, sort of like, uh, think about what you're doing here. Like, is it is it appropriate, Edgar, for you to kind of like just sign your name in Arabic letters? Like, why are you doing that? You're you're not really Arabic. You have no tie to the artistic the tradition of uh of saudi arabia the artistic tradition of saudi arabia you're just kind of doing it because it's like oh it's kind of cool and i know how to write in arabic like it's a bit i don't know i i don't i don't really like the practice like you should just sign your name in your own language like it'd be one thing if you had an irish name uh there is no irish version of edgar grunwald but like you have an irish version of your name like signing a painting in that is I think entirely appropriate. It shows where you come from. It shows the cultural context you stew in. But just whacking your name in Arabic on a thing because it's like that's cool and foreign. It's kind of like yeah, just just, just using a, a culture as as an aesthetic. Yeah, I, I I see, and I would I would always have similar concerns. But I mean, like, but there's always a flip side because the flip side would be that that you know my father introduced me to the concept of the arabic script at an early age and yeah and you know, i mean you were you were born in saudi arabia like so i, I was yeah, but i can't claim any sort of saudi no heritage is not even the word because i've only there for like a year and i don't remember any of it um so so yeah um so i don't so he's probably some dude from the prince of saud uh, the the house of saud um yeah i'm i'm, I'm looking here it looks like on all of the series five and six. Uh, oh no, it's not. They're not all on the. On the no, hold on. Let me let me figure this out. Yeah, the watermark on all of the series five ones is King Abdullah. Hmm. Um, now some of them are King Abdullah bin Abdulaziz Al Saud, and then the last one, the five hundred real, just says King Abdulaziz Al Saud. So that must be. His son. Bill, why is it that we... Uh, what causes a culture to want to have extremely long names? Um, like, no wh- idea. What is the reason... Okay, I'd love to know the reason why, like, you know, a lot of Portuguese names as well tend to have a gazillion words in them. Um, and I know, obviously, the Saudi princes tend to have a lot. Maybe it's possibly a thing like, you know, Bob, son of John, great-grandson of Henry the third or whatever maybe it's something a construction like that i don't know um but yeah it always struck me even from an early age being all like wait so i so we're called john smith and like at a push maybe john 
Henry Smith, but then there's other cultures that have like a gazillion names. Like why and what's the cultural reason? I'd love to know that. Anyone who is Portuguese, by the way, let us know because I, I, I'm pretty sure you're, you're famous for having extremely long names. Um, but yeah, so uh, that prince, some prince guy. Now, uh, have you done? Yeah, so I, I guess it's it's whoever it's it's the king of of Saudi Arabia at the time. Uh, now we know who Queen Elizabeth is. Uh, she is the immortal. Um, she's the Methuselah. Um, the, Vaguely familiar, all right. There's no one on this on the the Cypriot money, right? No, there appears to be uh, some sort of civic scene. It's very hard to see because it's so worn, but some yeah. sort of just picture of of architecture, or whatever, and then some olives. Um, who's the dude in the painting for the France thing? Do we know? That is, I think it's Debussy. Oh, oh, oh! So someone painted Debussy, or did Debussy didn't paint? Not to my knowledge, uh, but D- I mean, Debussy. I don't, I don't think Carl Friedrich Gauss did either. Uh, Debussy, for anyone who doesn't know, is a like a quote classical composer. Um, twentieth uh, uh, century, early twentieth century. Uh, yeah, I- impressionist era, so late nineteenth. Yep. 19th- early 20th century yeah uh he also was shilling for big whole tone scale uh, <laughs> that, that, that's a joke that the music nerds will will hopefully get and appreciate um and then so we have the boosie that's pretty cool and then on the kenyan money i'm going to work on the assumption that we're looking at a president of some description uh, oh, we are uh, it says it on note the president of the republic of kenya dan daniel toro toro teach arab moi President of the Republic of Kenya. Oh, he only died this year. He only died this year. Yeah, Daniel Daniel Arap Moi, and uh, Moi. Wow, Moi, Moi, Moi. Um, yeah. So that's uh, that's Mahal, uh, Bill. Uh, I thought I'd bring it up. Um, nice. Yeah, uh, and and that's all I have for 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 the uh, artifactian for the podcast, Bill. Cool. Cool. All right. Uh, so, as always, um, thanks everyone for uh, listening uh, and supporting the show. Thanks for picking up merch, all, all, all of that sort of jazz. Um, again, apologies for this uh, forthcoming period. It's going to be a bit tumultuous, but hopefully, everything will be back on the road as soon as possible. So, uh, Bill and I will see you at the earliest convenient date. Um, until then. Edgar Edgar Grouse. Grouse.